For our scripture reading this morning, we turn to Psalm 127. Perhaps you are accustomed to the pastor saying when considering a Lord's Day that the instruction of the Lord's Day is based on the whole of Scripture. And that's true this morning as we consider the baptism of infants. We read only five verses in Psalm 127, but the whole of Scripture supports the teaching of question and answer 74 of Lord's Day 27. Psalm 127, this is the Word of God. Let's hear it as His Word to us. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Thus far, we read the word of God this morning. May God bless the reading of his word. Before we read from Lord's Day 27, I'd like to say, first of all, that I would hate to come from Michigan to Iowa to catch an Iowa bug. Unfortunately, I came to Iowa with a Michigan bug. So, sorry about that. I hope that I don't spread any of this to you. I have been asked by the elders to shake hands after the service, but if any of you would rather not do that, that will be fine with me. Second of all, your clerk, Mr. Van Ginkle, told me that you're up to Lord's Day 27 in the Heidelberg Catechism, and I looked at my records, and I preached question and answer 72 and 73 of this Lord's Day with Lord's Day 26, so... I thought it wouldn't be good to repeat anything from what you had heard on Lord's Day 26 and decided to go to question and answer 74. You'll notice that question and answer 72 and 73 have to do with what a sacrament is. A sacrament is a visible sign of invisible grace. Now we remember that a sacrament is instituted not by the church, not by the Roman Catholic Church for sure, but not by the Reformed Church either. Sacraments are instituted by Christ himself, and there are two of them, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We're looking at baptism here in Lord's Day 27. And what we remember from questions 69 through 73 is that the grace is not given by the sign. The water of baptism is not what washes away sin. It is not what brings about the regeneration of the Spirit. Certainly, the minister does not exercise any power to give grace in baptism. But the baptism is an outward sign 
of the power and the grace of God. And we do believe then that the sacrament is a means of grace, God's grace, and is very important as a sign of the covenant. Now this morning, we face this question in question 74. Are infants also to be baptized? Yes, for since they as well as the adults are included in the covenant and church of God, and since redemption from sin by the blood of Christ and the Holy Ghost, the author of faith, is promised to them no less than to the adults. They must therefore by baptism as a sign of the covenant be also admitted into the Christian church and be distinguished from the children of unbelievers as was done in the old covenant or testament by circumcision instead of which baptism is instituted in the new covenant. The little children in the congregation could probably answer this question. What is the covenant? They have been taught in catechism and in the Christian school and hopefully in our homes that the covenant is that relationship of friendship between God and his people. And it's not a pact. It's not an agreement where God says this relationship of friendship is possible if only you will fulfill a condition. We're not friends, but if you do certain things, if you exercise faith and if you walk in obedience out of that faith, then you can become my friend. No. The beauty of the covenant is that God comes and he says, I have sovereignly established a relationship of friendship with you. I am your God and friend. And you are what? My servant? We would almost expect that, wouldn't we? We fell into sin. God didn't have to, but has determined to take care of the problem of sin for us, to wipe away our sins. That's more than we could ever hope for. Now what? Is God going to say, and now I'm going to be your master and you're going to be my slave? And I'm going to dwell in the center of the house, the tabernacle, and you're going to be a doorkeeper? No. The wonder of the covenant that God establishes is that he says, I'm going to bring you wholly into my own life. You're going to be my close friend, even my son and my daughter. What a wonderful thing that God's covenant is not something we have to work to enter into, but it's something that he sovereignly and graciously bestows upon us so that the reality is that we can say this morning we are God's friends in the covenant. Now we celebrate that covenant this morning not only because it is sovereign and a gracious relationship between God and us but also because that covenant includes and embraces 
the children of the church. God is not only your friend as believing mothers and fathers, but he is the friend of your sons and your daughters. Now, I know, and you know too, because we confess the truth of Scripture here in the Protestant Reformed Churches, and we stress that election and reprobation cut even through the covenant. So that we can't point to each child and say, now I know that this child is an elect child and is actually in the covenant, and this child is a reprobate child and is only in the sphere of the covenant. Maybe you know that distinction between being in the covenant and being in the sphere of the covenant. And there is a reality that when our children become young people and young adults, that they have to give expression of their faith and their obedience to the Lord. And if they do that, they do show that they are genuine members of the covenant. And there may come a point where a certain son or daughter in unbelief and in wickedness shows, no, that child is not part of the covenant. But what we do is we take hold of the Word of God, which teaches that God is the God of believers and their children, which holds forth the covenant promise. You know that promise. I'm going to be a God unto you and to your seed after you. So that we look at our children and we deal with them from this point of view. God is not only my friend, but God is the friend of these children. This is why... We teach them to pray. This is why we teach them the Word of God. This is why we tell them to believe in Jesus Christ. This is why we tell them that they must forsake sin and walk in the ways of obedience before God. This is why we send them to a Christian school in the hope that what the teachers are teaching the children isn't going to be worthless and fall on deaf ears, but it's going to be effective powerful working in the hearts and the lives of our children because God has made friendship with them as well as us. This fact that our children are in the covenant has everything to do with why we baptize them as children. And so this is what we see this morning, the connection between God's covenant and infant baptism. The theme for the sermon this morning is God's covenant and infant baptism. We're going to notice three D's, a demand, a duty, and a delight. A demand, a duty, and a delight. The catechism asks the question, are infants also to be baptized? And then really, the answer to that question is given in the first word, isn't it? Yes. There's the answer. Are infants to be baptized? Yes, they are. But then we recognize that the question isn't simply, are they to be baptized? But the question really is, why? Why should the infants of believers be baptized? And we know that that's the real question here when the catechism goes on to give all kinds of reasons for why infants are to be baptized. And really the answer that we give to this question, why are infants to be baptized, is this. God demands it. Now we should say at the outset, God does not say of every single 
child or infant born in the world, that that child should be baptized. We recognize that there's a distinction here between the children of unbelievers and the children of believers. God does not include unbelievers or their children in the covenant. But when God says to a believer, now you have the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, you have not only the promise, but the work of the Holy Spirit in you to regenerate you, to sanctify you. God says, now I've also determined I'm going to give that to your children. I'm going to wash them in the blood of Christ from their sins. I'm going to give them the Holy Spirit as well. And this is God's will. I emphasize that historically, we do not baptize children because a long time ago, the Roman Catholic Church, over against the Anabaptists, determined that infants are to be baptized. And then the Reformers came along and said, we're going to follow that practice of the Roman Catholic Church. We're going to baptize infants. Rather, the Reformed Church says, we're going to go on the basis of Scripture. And it is our conviction that God in His Word demands the baptism of our children. Now, how do we prove this from Scripture? We can point to a proof text that we know from the baptism form. We know it very well. That promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 17. Verse 7. I'm going to be a God unto you and to your seed after you. And we know that that was God making his covenant with Abraham and with his son Isaac. But the point is that if you study the whole of the scripture, you see it's not just one verse here or there that indicates that God is pleased to save believers and their children. And remember the, that it's not children later in life when your children are 11, 12, 13 years old. But the teaching of scripture is when these children are little, when they are infants, God saves them and includes them in his covenant. At the time that I wrote this sermon, in my daily reading, I was reading through the book of Deuteronomy, and I made this observation that the children of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy often is not a reference to the whole nation of Israel. But God often specifically makes reference to the children of the children of Israel, if you want to put it that way. And I counted 25 times that God, as he's giving the law of the covenant to the people of Israel, that's what Deuteronomy is about. You are my people. I am your God. And I love you. And now as those that I have delivered from bondage, Deuteronomy is about this. You must walk with me as my people. And 25 times in the book of Deuteronomy, God speaks of the children of the children of Israel as belonging to his covenant people. God did not, through Moses, say, I'm going to bring you to the land of Canaan. And we know Moses wasn't allowed to enter in ultimately but that it was Joshua who led the people into the land of Canaan. And there I'm going to make my covenant with you. I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. 
But when you get to the Jordan River, Moses, Joshua, you better leave the children on the east side of the river because they aren't old enough yet to be part of my covenant. Not at all. God, of course, brought the nation of Israel with their children into the land of promise. God said in Deuteronomy 1 verse 39, I'm giving this land to you and your children to possess it. And so the law of God that we read this morning, where God says, here's how you are to keep my commandments and live in fellowship with me, in Deuteronomy is not only for the adults. You know Deuteronomy 6. God says to fathers and mothers, you teach these things to your children. When you wake up in the morning, as you walk along the way during the day, and when you go to bed at night. And what does that mean? What that means is God is saying, your children are not children of the world. They're not unbelievers. They're not free to worship idols and to live like the people of the world. Your children are to love and to serve me. They're my children. And so we're told here that God has included the children in the covenant and the church of God. The catechism doesn't say this, but I want to add this because at the time that I preached this sermon, there was a baptism in the faith congregation. And when there's a baptism, we read the baptism form. And when we read the baptism form, you will recall this. We're told not only that our children are part of the covenant and the church of God, but they're also part of the kingdom of God. Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, when the disciples weren't letting children come to him, stop it. He was much displeased and said unto them, suffer the children to come unto me. And when you look at what was happening, Jesus wasn't merely saying, let them walk to me. But Luke, in his account, speaks of infants. So that children were coming to Jesus as infants carried in the arms of their fathers and their mothers. And Jesus says, you let them come to me. For of such will be the kingdom of heaven? No. For of such is right now the kingdom of heaven. This makes sense, does it not? Why should God be the king of a kingdom of only adults and not of children? It doesn't work that way in the United States of America. It would be absurd, wouldn't it, for President Biden to say, I am the president of the United States of America, and I only recognize the adult people in this country as citizens under my rule. The children are excluded. It's not the way it works in a nation or a kingdom. The children are included as part of that nation, that kingdom. And even if you want to think of a monarchy in France or in Britain or somewhere else, no king would ever say, my realm is only a realm for the older members here that are living in my land. But the children are included in the kingdom. 
And so God says, they're in my covenant, my church, my kingdom. Therefore, you must baptize them as those who are recipients of salvation. The other language used in the scriptures in Psalm 127 is that of inheritance. Verse 3, lo, children are an heritage of the Lord. That has to do, that language, with an inheritance. And you all are familiar with the father or mother setting up an inheritance. Now, when does one become an heir of father or mother? Imagine you would visit a lawyer and say, I'm going to draw up a will. And in this will, I want you to put a stipulation that my children may not have anything from my estate until they're older. That might happen. But imagine if you said to the lawyer, no, I want to exclude my children altogether. They're not my heirs at all until they reach a certain age. I don't think that ever happened. And the lawyer would wonder, what are you thinking? Children become heirs of their parents when they are born. And that's the idea in the scripture. God says, these children are my heritage that I give to you as children, as infants. And how can this be? Because God very clearly teaches they are washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, when Moses was leading the people out of Egypt, and the picture to the people was that they only could have this deliverance from the bondage of Egypt, from the bondage of sin, <coughs> excuse me, through the shed blood of the Lamb, that Lamb covered the sins of the children as well as the adults. This is how they can be in the church. This is why they're part of the covenant of God. Not because, as we know, they're born innocent or so good or perfect in themselves, but because God is pleased to cleanse them in the blood of Christ and to give them the Holy Spirit. The promise in Acts 2 verse 39 is unto you, and to your children. That is, not only in the future, but really the word to or unto in Acts 2 verse 39 could be removed. The promise is unto you and your children. In other words, the Apostle Peter wasn't saying sometime in the future the Holy Spirit's going to be given to your children, but he's actually saying now your children receive the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And so we are convinced. God says when he says, I include your children in my covenant, in my church, in my kingdom, in my inheritance, in redemption, in the work of the Spirit, they're mine. And now because they receive the reality, make sure you understand this is why it is so important to know that a sacrament is a visible sign of an invisible reality. The Reformed are ever arguing this to the Baptist. The Baptist says, where does the Bible say thou shalt baptize children? 
Or where does the Bible clearly say that children were baptized by the apostles? Now, we can get into an argument about that and point to household baptisms. I would even argue that in the crossing of the Red Sea, which is called by the Apostle Paul to be a baptism, that the children who crossed through the Red Sea with their parents were baptized by Moses, by God, in the Old Testament. But that's not really the point. The point is this. It doesn't matter if God anywhere says, here's the sign and that sign needs to be given to children. The point is, here's the reality. The washing away of sin by the blood of Christ. The, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And if God in the Bible says, the reality is given to children, and God does say that, then they must receive the outward sign. And then finally, there is circumcision in the Old Testament. What did God say to Abraham? Eight days, eight days old, circumcise your infant son. Why? God speaks very clearly in Genesis 17. You circumcise them because they are included in the covenant. And now, baptism has come in the place of circumcision. How do we know that? Well, we know that from Colossians chapter 2. You can find references in the scriptures to the fact that circumcision, Romans 4, was a sign of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith. What is baptism? The same sign. The righteousness that we have by faith through the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. And now, we ask the question, is it possible that in the Old Testament, God would say, I include children in the covenant. And now because we don't have a command in the New Testament saying, thou shalt baptize children, that God in the New Testament is going to exclude children. This is what a Baptist would have you to believe, that somehow in the Old Testament, God was more inclusive. He was including the children. And now in the New Testament, God is more exclusive. He's not even including the children. But the reality is that when we search the scriptures, we see it's just the opposite. In the Old Testament, God gave a sign. That was for the boy. Now, the girls were also included in the covenant through their fathers and through their brothers. But now in the New Testament, Jesus Christ has given a sign that is for the little infant boys and girls. And it makes sense that Jesus Christ says, I'm doing away with circumcision, and I'm going to give you a new appropriate sign of the covenant. And it makes sense because we know that circumcision was a bloody ceremony. And Jesus Christ, having come, shed his blood upon the cross once for all, not only taking away sin, but doing away with the shedding of blood for sin, says, here, I'm going to give you a sign that doesn't involve the shedding of blood. 
so that whenever you see the water of baptism, you have a clearer guarantee of the forgiveness of sin than Abraham had even in circumcision. You see, in circumcision, when that blood was shed, Abraham and all of the people of the Old Testament had to say, it hasn't really happened yet. The sacrifice, the bloodshed that takes away sin. But every time you see baptism, and you can say this, there's no blood being shed in this sacrament. This ceremony has no blood because I know Jesus shed his blood and paid for all our sins. And so God demands that our children receive the sign of salvation, the sign of his covenant, baptism with water, and that comes with a duty or an obligation. Perhaps you remember that the form points to the duty of the child, the one who is baptized. And that is implied here when we are told that our children are part of the covenant and the church of God, and they are distinguished from the children of unbelievers. That means that when the child is older, that the child needs to be told by mom and dad, you were baptized. You don't remember this. But we have to tell you about your baptism. We have to tell you that God marked you as his. And this is the church, by the way. The church is made up of those who are called out, called out of the world. God has called you out of the world and he's called you into the church. And now when you sin, I have to remind you of your baptism and tell you that that baptism obligates you to forsake your sin. Your baptism obligates you to crucify your old nature, to turn away from the ways of the world, to live in new obedience before God and his son, Jesus Christ. Well, you can tell then that baptism not only lays a demand or an obligation on the child, but upon the parents of the child. When God says, this is how it's going to work, I am going to include you as believers in my covenant with your children. God is laying the demand upon parents to bring up their children in his ways. Parents need to be reminded of this. The fact that your children don't belong to the world means that the world may not be the influence upon your children, the one who teaches your children what to think or how to live. And the reality is that the world wants to do this. You know that, don't you? All around us are the influences of the world that our children have access to so that if believing parents do not take seriously this obligation laid upon them to bring up their children, to teach them, to discipline them, then children of the church can be and will be raised by the world. Now I'm not pointing any fingers here. 
I can't do that. But sadly, you know very well that sometimes this is the reality. There are children of confessing Christians in the church who are brought up under the influence of the world. Our children belong to Christ and to his church, and they must be reared that way. And so the parents need to say to them, sin is not going to be tolerated in this home. And that doesn't mean that we put sinners out of our home, because if we put sinners out of our home, all of us would have to leave the home. But it does mean that sin must be confessed. It does mean that sin needs to be confessed before the Lord and that there needs to be repentance so that there may be forgiveness. And there needs to be discipline. Not because the parents are angry, not because the parents get annoyed by their children when they misbehave, but because the parents take this very seriously. God says that you're not merely my child, but that you're his. And if I'm living with the reality of that in my mind, that you are not merely my child, but belong to God, then I need to demand that you live in the ways of God. Our children must be taught Christ and his word. That he is the Savior. This is really what the Christian home should be all about. The Christian home does not belong to the father or to the mother, but to Christ. He must be the ruler in the home and the Savior. And it must be emphasized that this is the purpose of all of the instruction that is given. This is not moral instruction in the sense of we just want you to behave, not do what is bad, and do what is good. But we want you to understand the heart of Christ. We want you to understand that we are calling you to live a certain way for Christ's sake. He is the one who shed his blood for us, for us and for you as our child. And so this is why we want to forsake the world. This is why we want to live in obedience to God, to thank him for Jesus Christ. And he is the Lord. He has saved us from sin so that we now belong to him. He's our master and he does tell us how to live. The children need to learn how to worship God and the Lord Jesus Christ from their parents. How to love the neighbor as themselves to show honor and respect to authority. And they need to learn that before they go to school, before they go to catechism. And then from mom and dad, while they are in the school, the Christian school, and in the catechism class. Perhaps it's in order to say that we need to be careful to understand the covenant calling of parents and not to mix this up when it comes to the calling of the church and the calling of the Christian school. And what I mean by that is if there are issues that arise with the children in a congregation where the Christian school is used, the parents must not give up or neglect their duty to address the issues with their children, saying, well, I hope that this gets taken care of at the school by the teachers, or I hope this gets taken care of by the elders or the minister in 
the catechism class. That's backwards. That's mixing things up. God gives to the parents the duty when it comes to the instruction and the discipline of their children. So that it should be this way, that every father, every mother in the congregation this morning says, it's my duty to point my children to Christ. And if there is a problem with some kind of worldliness, if there is a problem with some kind of disrespect for authority, if there's a problem with not telling the truth, with lying, if there's any kind of problem in the life of my child, God has called me to address it biblically and in love for Jesus Christ. If our children are rebelling, misbehaving, let's not give that over to someone else to deal with. Let's also not excuse it or encourage them by saying, well, they're young. Perhaps it's not out of order this morning to say that too, that we need to be reminded of this. That when God says, I include your children from a young age in my covenant, he's saying that when your children are eight, but also when your children are 14 or 15 or 16 or 17 or 18, it is not time for them to have fun and sow their wild oats, to live a little while like the world. But they are to be like David, to be like Daniel, to be like all of the examples of godly children in the scriptures, turning from sin and the ways of the world and living in fellowship with God. It's a great duty, comes with many difficulties, but it is a blessing and a delight to bring up the children of the covenant. Two things this morning that we ought to consider as we think of this glorious reality. God includes our children in the covenant says here, these are my children. They're not just yours, they're mine. That means that you have to bring them up in a certain way. And now God also adds to that his assurance of blessing and joy. The first blessing to consider is the blessing of a covenant home. Now I've said it in my prayer and I'll say it again here, that there are certain people who are never given the joy of being married, and there are other people who are never given the joy of having children. And the word of God to them is that God is still a faithful God to them, a covenant friend to them, and that he can enrich and give many blessings to them in their lives as well. But the scriptures do emphasize that children are inherited of the Lord, a great gift that God gives to his people, so that parents say, as the fruit of having children and bringing them up in the fear of the Lord, what a joyful thing to have a covenant home, a believing home. Where God has caused us to grow in our experience 
of this reality that he is our God and friend. The reality is, is that in a home where the covenant is ignored, where the word of God is ignored, where this duty to bring the children up in the fear of the Lord is not taken seriously, this isn't going to be enjoyed. That's part of the warning, but also the encouragement of this point in the sermon. You want to enjoy that God is your friend. You want to enjoy that as a daily reality in your life. Then live according to his covenant. And what parents experience is that all of the teaching, all of the discipline, all of the work with the children will lead to spiritual growth and joy. Just take, for example, discipline. When a parent takes that duty seriously, I am going to work with my children to show them their sin. I'm going to work with them to show them the way to live with God in obedience. When a parent takes that seriously, the parent has to say, I'm going to examine my own life too. Be more sensitive to my own sins. Recognize the wonder that I am a sinner forgiven by God's grace and must grow in my relationship with Him. And the mothers, especially maybe the mothers in the home, experience the blessing of the covenant of having covenant children. All the Bible stories that are read, all the prayers that are made, all of the work with little children in the home, I hope that the mothers here will recognize is much more blessed and rewarding than any kind of earthly career that could ever be had. May God cause us to keep this perspective that it's a joy to have children that belong to God, to have a covenant home, to enjoy the blessings of the covenant, and then secondly, the delight that we will have in a covenant home is in the children. To watch them grow up and develop physically, intellectually is a joy. But to watch them grow up spiritually is an amazing joy. The greatest joy that God gives is spiritual fruit. How many parents here have not experienced the truth of what 3 John 4 says? I have no greater joy in my life that my children walk in truth. I'm sure the older saints will make testimony to this to the younger members of the church, the younger fathers and mothers. It's not always easy to raise children. There are many sacrifices, many difficulties. But as we get older, we begin to realize the things of this world don't bring us the greatest joy. The retirement account that we have worked 40, 50 years to save up doesn't bring us greatest joy. But our greatest joy and delight is found in our children and grandchildren belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when 
those children are taught in the home. And when they are taught in the Christian school and in the catechism room, isn't this what we experience? That they do learn to confess their sin. And they really mean it. It comes from the heart. They do learn to pray to God. And when we hear those prayers, we must not be suspicious of them. They're just made up or they're just doing it to please us. But this comes from true faith in God and love for Jesus Christ. And when they come from home from the Christian school, after you've sent them for a couple of years, some of you have already experienced this. Some of you haven't yet. You're amazed. I didn't teach them all this. But God is gracious in his covenant to give all of the spiritual growth and maturity to our children. May we continue to baptize our children and remember the reality is they belong to God. It is our duty to point them to God and He will keep them in Jesus Christ. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy word which reminds us of the greatest joy that we have, thy covenant, to be in a relationship of friendship with thee, thy son Jesus Christ, and with fellow believers. And may we experience that as a congregation. May we experience that also in our Christian schools and in the lives of our children. The joy of spiritual fellowship with one another in Jesus Christ. Bless our children and young people. Keep them from the ways of the world. Grant that as they are instructed in the way that they should go, that when they are older, they will not depart from it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.